I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Casey Giltner. And we love to watch. We love to watch. I don't even have the fucking title. <laughs> that shows you how, how professional we are. That'll it's all uh, get edited out or left in if I feel like making Peter look silly. <laughs> oh, we love to watch. Jimmy Stewart tells someone to swallow a moon. <laughs> Hey team, how you guys doing? Doing pretty good. Uh, I've stopped crying. I watched it two days ago. Uh, <laughs> I'm in a similar boat. Uh, Casey, you love this movie. Do you, do you cry when you watch it, or is it? We're really getting into like the meat of the episode. Like, Casey, do you cry? How are your feelings? <laughs> well, I'm also testing you if you're a robot. There sorry. is no movie that makes me cry more than this movie. It has been three days since I finished watching this, and. All afternoon today, I was still listening to sad songs on the internet, mostly written by Sharon Van Etten, just to wallow <laughs> in my own despair. Um, <laughs> which is odd, because, you know, th- technically the ending is supposedly so uplifting, but I somehow just feel awful about myself at the end, because I'm like, <laughs> I will never be a man that inspires an entire town like this. Uh that's awesome. Uh yeah, you uh probably won't be. Uh mainly cuz we we both live in Minneapolis St. Paul. It's a big town. And people aren't that social. So Not that social. No. Uh and uh it'd be weird nowadays cuz people would just come in and like transfer money on your Cash App or your Venmo. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not as visually appealing as a giant basket. So anyways, yes, we if you haven't heard us before, where we love to watch our movie podcast, we pick a theme, and each month we do uh, four or so movies around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast them. This month is our Christmas movie spectacular. We didn't come up with a great title. It is just uh, favorite Christmas movies throughout um, throughout our lives. We did Home Alone the first week, Nightmare Before Christmas last week, and now we are doing, I think, is what is not only uh, my favorite Christmas movie, but like my one of my top five favorite movies of all time. Uh, it's A Wonderful Life. And we are joined by uh, Casey Giltner Esquire. Which he told me very specifically <laughs> that I needed to call him that. I uh, I know Casey in real life. The like the third person we've had on this podcast that I've met face to face. I work with uh, his wife. Uh, <laughs> if you guys remember the movie Borat, it's kind of a take on that. A little Never bit. seen it. No. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is probably not that good nowadays. Uh, but <laughs> and Casey uh, is pursuing a uh, uh, career in film. He, when I first met him at a kind of a summer drinking thing we were doing on the weekends, where I invited a bunch of people from work. Uh, I believe it was, him it was and- just a Tuesday. I think you know. Yeah, just, yeah, it was a Tuesday. Everyone skipped work. We everyone put in PTO. But uh, it was like meeting. It was like meeting a, uh, a sentient reflection of yourself in the mirror, where uh, <laughs> at least from a knowledge of movies. Uh, and I think I think as the host, I probably did a very bad job the rest of the day because we just started ta- showing movie lists and talking about uh, probably pretty insufferable stuff that everyone else was just staring at us. 
I distinctly remember at least a half an hour just staring at your movie collection and you walking through every title, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's yes. the day that I bought Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> Want to see it? I did. <laughs> oh, I assumed he was just doing titles like you were just like you were just going through IMDb and be like, yep, there's definitely a movie called Osama. Yeah. Every, every movie has a story and every purchase has a story. Um, <laughs> you know what? Actually, my problem is, is that uh, I, I've never told you this, but I'm, I'm actually still uh, still a subscriber to BMG Music. Uh, they converted to DVD, so I get twelve a month uh, at the <laughs> low, low price of eight thousand dollars. But it's always Time Cop. All it's always times. Time Cop. It is most of the straight to video National Lampoon movies. Um, <laughs> There's some real gems in there, don't? Yeah. Yes. So yeah. Here's my collection: uh, National Lampoon's Animal House. Uh, here's uh, Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru. Uh, here is Koyonosatsi and Time Cop and Time Cop and Time Cop and, and National Cop. Lampoon's Last Resort. Um, I can I can probably sum up the plot of every National Lampoon movie released post-1995. Some dude wants to have sex. Yeah, I mean, I guess people get horny. They should make movies about it, right? <laughs> oh, and they did, Peter. <laughs> Until the company folded. Anyways, Casey. I mean, there were like six movies about people fucking pie, so I don't really the, know. If the company folded, but they yeah. were bought by Palmstar International, I think, or something like that. And fun fact, I actually met with them when I was out in L.A. this last uh, <laughs> July. Um, I'm not sure I should talk about this in public, but it did happen. It was crazy. <laughs> Were you like, picture this, 18 years old, trying to have sex. And they're like, here is all the money. <laughs> I was meeting with them for another company that they own. And like somebody from National Lampoon sits in on the meeting. And I'm just like, well... I came here to pitch you horror movies. What the hell am I supposed to say to National Lampoon? So, yes, I said, well, here's what's happened to me when I was 17 years old. And uh, uh, here's how I lost my virginity. And here's how I uh, – here's the craziest thing that happened to me in a frat house at college. And uh, just started rambling through events in my life. And um, it they did not bite on anything. Just, <laughs> they didn't? No. Oh, man. I know. It's a shock. It's a shock. But – they only have one thing. That's apparently you need more exciting stories from those days. Oh, uh, you you fuck too many pecan pies in college. Oh, Damn, they're looking mistake. for people that want to fuck American pies. Ah. nut allergies are a real thing that you need to appeal to as people without nut allergies. <laughs> <laughs> Stick your dick into a pecan pie, people could die, and it's a bad influence on children. Um, yeah. just because you have a, have a nut allergy doesn't mean you don't want a nut. I think that's actually a legit. What should be a National Lampoon movie is a guy who fucks a pecan pie and then <laughs> dies from a pe from a nut allergy thanks to a sexually transmitted nut. And you, because Eugene Levy was too nervous to tell him that he has a nut allergy. This shit writes itself. I don't. Wh huh, where were you guys? Six months ago? <laughs> uh, well, and then the reason that he had to fuck the pie in the beginning is that every woman he met had a nut allergy to his nuts specifically. So it's full circle. <laughs> it's thematically resonant. <laughs> mm. um, but uh, yeah, that's a great segue, though. Uh, Casey, why don't you tell is us it? a little bit more? Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Because yeah. Yeah, you, uh, you do some uh, horror screenwriting, I think, specifically, and it's a perfect movie that you picked because this movie is nothing but a <laughs> horror movie about capitalism and uh, and uh, giving up your dreams. 
Well, it's a it's a high honor to be only the third uh, uh, spouse of a coworker that you've invited <laughs> on this podcast. Um, Most uh, are single. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, I'm a lawyer by day, screenwriter, occasional filmmaker by night. Uh, trying to make that full transition. I'm writing some. I'm mostly writing horror movies or very disturbing thrillers. And uh, hopefully, if all goes well in the next year, you will see something on the screen with my name attached to it. But it is a long, long, grueling process that is slowly driving me insane. Um, (laughs) Which is why I love to watch movies all day, every day that I possibly can. (laughs) And that is how I got to this podcast. I actually didn't know that part about you for for a long time. Yeah, I, we, I think we had met a few times, uh, talked for a long time, and I, I had no idea that you were uh, doing that uh, besides being a lawyer. And not surprising for two film nerds that uh, do a film podcast, you know, Peter and I, I think at different points in our life, had similar dreams. And I think that this is a, a very, like, personally resonant movie from that perspective in a way that um, only gets more and more – I can recognize myself more and more in uh, in George Bailey as I get older, uh, both good and bad, about, you know, this is, a, this is a movie about someone who gave up his dreams for other dreams um, that he didn't really realize were just as important to him as, as his original ones ended up being, but it's a long journey getting there. And I think, I think this is the perfect group of people to talk about a movie like that. So I'm very excited to, to get into the movie proper. But first, before we do that, Peter, for the first time in a long time, well, I didn't make a game, but there is a game that will be happening. Here's, I love this movie. I said it's one of my top five favorite movies of all time. However, I also re- realized this time watching it, uh, there's one area that they get they get kind of nitty gritty on uh, that I don't understand at all, <laughs> and, and uh, I don't really know how economics and bank loans really work. Uh, and I say that as someone who has purchased two houses with uh, almost all the paperwork being filled out by my wife, who understands this stuff way more than I do. So there's a big financial crisis. There's a run on the banks in this, and I wasn't quite clear, and I guess I never really have been, why they're taking money from there instead of the bank and how all that stuff works. So I I think that even though it's a movie I love, I could appreciate it a little more. And so I I did a little studying up on some economics in general, uh, and I put together a little quiz just because I figured both of you could stand to learn a little bit more about what makes this movie so great, which is uh, interest rates and bank loans and how the mm-hmm. American economy works. So this quiz is an economics quiz? <laughs> yeah, it's an economics quiz. Uh, I'm going to ask you each three Boy. questions. There's a tiebreaker. I have a minor uh, in economics, so if I do oh, bad, Peter. I'm going to be very embarrassed. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> I didn't know that coming in. I mean, I knew he was a lawyer. I figured that money comes into that at some point. So I took this quiz. I got three out of seven. Uh, but you're each going to get three questions. We have a tiebreaker. But, Peter, it sounds like you're up against kind of like the the George Foreman of rudimentary economics knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, how many uh, economics classes did you take? Uh, three. Hmm. Yeah. How many is a minor? Like 12? I, I think it's only like seven. 
All right, so I'm not so that. You're, far you're halfway to a minor. <laughs> well, did you say you got a quarter? Or three right? classes. You're three classes. Oh, so you credits. You might, yeah. So you might have beat him, Peter. Why didn't you ever tell me that you had a minor in economics? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If he's the George Foreman, maybe you should gr- grill me. Do we ever issue booze? audible booze on this (laughs) (laughs) just remember that moment and then when you don't hear it in the podcast you'll find out how everything works um so all right uh who wants to go first guess first guess first guess first if the cpi in 2000 is 100 and the cpi in 2008 is 110 there has been slight inflation slight deflation extreme inflation uh, extreme deflation or stagflation, uh, which is something I never heard of before, but I assume it is masturbating a cow. <laughs> I know what stagflation is, but I don't know the answer to this question. <laughs> so I'm going to say A. Slight inflation. That's what I guessed. But as I told you, I did very poorly on this quiz. Uh, so that is incorrect. It is extreme inflation. Is the co- is the CPI the cost price Index? Consumer price index, right? Consumer price index. Here's the best part about this quiz. I don't know anything about the underlying answers. I didn't didn't create the quiz. I stole it from online, as I mentioned. So if you have any follow-up questions, I'm going to refer you to your economics textbook. Oh, got it. So it's the blind leading the- It's definitely uh, the consumer price index, but I don't know how that works. And the slightest. Mm. Well, apparently, <laughs> if it goes from 100 to 110 in eight years, that's extreme inflation. Uh, I don't know about you guys. I'm already appreciating It's a Wonderful Life quite a bit more. Uh, <laughs> Peter, your question. Uh, why are transfer payments... Wait, why, yeah. Why are transfer payments not a component of GDP? They are too large and would skew data. They are negligible in size and scope. They do not generate wealth. They only measure a producer's impact on GDP, or they only measure the government's impact on GDP. Uh, they do not generate wealth? Correct. I don't know. I get that one right, too. Thanks. Well, well guys, a couple, couple people that combined got 16 credits in economics. You're one for Woo. two as a group. Doing it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Casey, your second question. What is the effect of a price ceiling in the long run? Equilibrium? Shortages, surpluses, inflation, or deflation? Oh, I got this one right. The three questions I got right, and I've took no economics classes. I'm going to say shortages. Correct. Oh, it's one to one. It's a barn burner, and it's wonderful life has gone up to six stars in my estimation. (laughs) I'm going to tell you, I spent a not zero amount of time trying to find ones very specific to how savings and loans work. Could not find a quiz <laughs> based around that. Um, so we're just doing basic economics. Uh, Peter, okay. you're an artist. It takes you an hour to produce one work of art. In other words, one work takes one hour. Two works takes two hours and so forth. Time is your only cost. This violates the princi- principle of demand, supply, ownership, equilibrium, or diminishing marginal returns. I'm guessing diminishing marginal returns. You are correct. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what that is, but I guessed equilibrium. All right. Two to one. Casey. Hmm. Your last question. Which of the following is not a component of demand? Is it consumer spending, investment, 
government spending, transfer payments, or export exports? Say the answers one more time. Consumer spending, investment, government spending, transfer payments, or exports? Transfer payments. Correct. Uh, I didn't even notice that transfer payments was the answer for two of these. This may have been an economic <laughs> quiz specifically about how transfer payments work. I this, don't know. This quiz is very transfer payments heavy. Um, all right, Peter, if you get this, no tiebreaker, you just win the game. Okay. Which of the following would cause a supply shift? A change in consumer tastes or preferences? New technology? Consumer taxes? Employment figures? Or none of the above? Uh, the tastes answer? Incorrect. New technology. Huh. Wow. It's pretty crazy. This is a good movie. So, here, here's what we're going to do. A tiebreaker was just one question. Uh, if you guys, if I let you guys both answer and you both answer the same, this could go on forever and I'm out of questions that I sure as shit cannot make up any on my own. So, I guess you guys need to decide among yourself who's going to take this question. If you get it right, you win. If you get it wrong, the other person wins. I'm going with Casey on this. I feel it, it feels fair to give him this last one. <laughs> well, okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you own a farm. It generates $100,000 per year. You discover it's sitting on top of a field of oil uh, that could generate sell, sell, sell. $500,000 per year. Your economic cost of continuing to farm on the land is $100,000, $400,000, dollars $200,000, $500,000, or $1 million, or as written here, $1,000. $400,000. Correct. Clearly, I should have continued and gotten my major in economics. I don't know I what think I was so. thinking. <laughs> you got two out of three in a basic economics test and then won a tiebreaker. It's an. I think you guys both got Fs, but you got the extra credit point. Hey, so. supply and demand, man. Supply and demand. Couldn't have said it better myself, Casey. <laughs> yeah, I just have to congratulate him right now on uh, really taking home that quiz. And I feel like we all understand It's a Wonderful Life a little bit better now. Don't you? Yeah, I, I think it's my favorite movie now. But Casey, nice work on the economics quiz. It was really, uh, it was really impressive how I just tossed that, uh, tossed that question to you, and you just owned it. Nice work. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, and now that I look at the question again, even though I no did get it wrong, it really comments. is just asking what five hundred <laughs> minus a hundred is. But, um, <laughs> yes. Uh, I appreciate It's a Wonderful Life more, and now I'm extra excited to talk about it. Do you guys want to talk about It's a Wonderful Life? Yeah. Hell yeah. I believe I well I don't I don't actually believe anything cuz I don't remember who is alternate taglines and who is quick recap. Any- yeah, what uh what do you have any alternate taglines Aaron? <laughs> I think it might be me. Be sure. <laughs> uh yeah, I got some alternate taglines. Um the best adaptation of the communist manifesto that uh 
Karl Marx wishes he could have made. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny because, like, as a kid, I watched it so many times as a kid, and uh, like elementary school, junior high, and stuff like that, as we're like learning basic civics and government and very surface level how our economy works um like i never watched this and was like is this kind of an incitement against capitalism and then we found out from our guest on uh ethan warren on our home alone episode that this movie was actually on the fbi like the fbi was watching it because and all like i think tried to ban it or was trying to figure out ways to limit its release because uh, they were worried that it was an attack against capitalism that would cause riots in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie is definitely a serious weapon against the powers that be. Uh, notice how every year around Christmas when they put it on TV, hundreds of bankers are hung from Wall Street. It is funny. It is one of those those movies that makes me think that I'm still – even as a 35-year-old, pretty naive as a person. Because I watch this movie, and it's and it is a Christmas tradition-type movie for me. And I, I watch it, and I go, man, everyone has seen this movie. Why are there all these bad people in the world? Like, I feel that way when I, like, watch Sesame Street or uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's like, where where did all these terrible people come from? Didn't they watch these shows that I watched as a kid that, that taught you to treat other people with respect and, and all this stuff? And, like... I think It's a Wonderful Life is one of those things as an adult where I still watch this or like Muppet Christmas Carol and was like, did people watch this and go, I want to be the fucking old guy in the wheelchair? Or what <laughs> What happened? What happened in your life? I think people, uh, as they typically do with any sort of movie with a political bend, they watched it. They took whatever, they cherry picked whatever lessons they wanted from it. And then they moved the fuck on. And, like, they, I'm guessing someone who went into, like, hedge funds uh, w- looked at this movie and said, like, well, uh, yes, this movie doesn't necessarily agree with, with uh, what I'm doing for a living. But uh, if I just make lots of friends, I'm good. So I should call up my frat brothers every weekend to make sure they're doing well. And, uh, yeah, then I'll be just like George Bailey. And then they can bail me out when I blow it all on a hookers and blow, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I agree. Like, why is the movie so – it's interesting that, like, this is probably one of the most agreeable – in the current day, obviously not at the time, and we'll get to that. But in the current day, it's one of the most agreeably wholesome, but, like, very um, – uh, it's extremely uh, convincing argument for why we don't need these like big corporate overlords in our life and why money can be evil and why you shouldn't be this like predatory force of financial power in the world and why you should be a financial power force of good and that is possible and uh instead everyone just sees the movie and they're just like isn't it nice that the nice guy didn't kill himself Yeah, and, you know, I was going to save this for the movie proper, but as long as we're kind of there, like, the other thing to remember, and we can get into the plot after we kind of wrap this up, but the other thing to remember, and and I really noticed it watching this time, is that, like, Mr. Potter doesn't hate George Bailey because George Bailey is, like, taking away this tiny sliver of his potential business. Like, that doesn't even come up until the very end of the movie with the guy who's like, look, people are actually moving into his moving into his houses. But he's hated the Baileys and George Bailey from the beginning. And he says it so clearly, and it was something that I, you know, just didn't notice a lot of the time, which is he is mad that George Bailey and his father before him 
didn't make it a bigger priority to um, accumulate money and wealth. Like he says it so many times that you guys are idiots. You're operating this at barely a cost. Like his his true disdain for the Baileys is that they are not uh, capitalist enough. Not that they're beating him. Not that he needs to get that money. Not that he really wants to own everything, although there is a component of that, but he just fucking hates them personally because they don't care about accumulating wealth the same way that he does. And that that's very interesting because that is like something that a certain political party in this country like seems to hate about a lot of other people. Like why and why they like love Donald Trump and stuff like that. It's like they love Donald Trump because they believe that he is his. He, they made his number one priority to accumulate as much money as possible, and that's what they want to do. But like, and that's where that's where Mister Potter's disdain for the Baileys comes from. And it feels even more so like the only way that anyone would uh, become so embittered by someone as good as George Bailey is because there's uh, George Bailey uh, reflects back reflects. Uh, Potter sins back at him. Potter could have been this force for good in his community. Instead, he ran slums for 70 years or whatever. Um, he could have been this this true force for good. But George Bailey being this uh, the other money man in town, even though he's an underdog compared to, to Potter, choosing to not go for that sort of predatory capitalism act, makes Potter maybe feel bad about himself or it makes him it reflects back on him in some way it's a very it's a very uh interesting thing that like yeah he's not it's not just about pure greed with potter the movie is actually more complex than that like potter resents george bailey for not being just as petty as he is there's this disdain that you're talking about that trump the ruling class now have for anyone who isn't the most rampant capitalist that can possibly be and it's watching this movie and you saying that about Mr. Potter and just catching this for the first time like is proof right there that this has been a prevalent theme throughout American history and it's why we're so capitalistic and consumeristic and driven by you know things and it's also why in my half-assed research on this movie the FBI actually dug into this movie in 1947 and stated the following in a memo that the substance, uh, the film depicted a rather obvious attempts to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources, is a common trick used by communists. So, <laughs> to bring it back to your alternate uh, tagline. It, re it really it really is. And also, that's why... His ult when he had finally decided he had had enough of the Baileys and he and he needed to do something about it. Like in most movies, that would be, I'm gonna wipe him off the map. I'm gonna do something nefarious, like hire a hitman or some shit like that. Like I'm gonna have a mobster go and burn down his his uh, his the savings and loan. No, what does he do? He offers him a ridiculous amount of money. $10,000 a year for like 1930 something is the equivalent of like close to a million dollars a year and for a three year contract like and he's going to manage his affairs like I'm going to give him a job not just with a lot of money but having a important place in my empire because I recognize that he is he's very good 
at what he does. He's a very good businessman. And that is like a perfect like last temptation of Christ thing. <laughs> like he he's not trying to like take him down. His ultimate final attempt to quote unquote take George Bailey down is based on corrupting him in the same way that he's been corrupted and basically like seating him like at the at the right hand of the father, like some old like fucking fall of man, fall of the angels thing. Like that's his revenge. Like when he wants to take him out, he's like, I'm going to give you all the power and all the money. And George Bailey says, no, most people of a certain political party, Republicans and that kind of stuff, I think watching that would go, you idiot, take the money. That turns to disdain. Like, um, but it is kind of crazy because it's funny that the FBI even mentions fucking Scrooge because, yeah, this is a little bit of the Scrooge thing. <laughs> There's not a movie that that portrays a fucking like banker who's taking over a town is like a good guy. Can you think of a movie where like the the rich banker is the is the hero? No, no. And it's and it's for a very good reason it's that we live in a post United you know, we live in a post depression world where people have a certain cynicism about uh our financial system, a rightfully placed cynicism. But people don't know how to politically act on it because we do, in fact, need banks. We do, in fact, need these financial institutions. But people don't know how and where to put the, you know, put the thumbscrews on. And it's interesting, Casey, you mentioned that um, that this movie uh, raised some flags for the powers that be. It's a Wonderful Life was directed by Frank Capra. It came out uh, seven years after Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which also uh, raised some ire with the powers that be and was also a movie that was like fairly controversial in its time. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life was uh, more of a bomb. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington basically created Jimmy Stewart. So it it, it was successful. Um, but Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was a movie that was heavily uh, lambasted in his time by the press didn't like it because it made political press look bad. Uh, many politicians didn't like it at the time because they thought that it made uh, – they thought that it would undermine people's faith in the political system, the American political system. And even though Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life are now in the modern sense seen as these like very uh, – <laughs> like – uh, shiny, like uh, clean, wholesome films, like they were in a sense politically fiery and, and poignant for their times in such a way that they were seen as dangerous in, in, in a sense. That is a shockingly bad take. I mean, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is one of half, half of the reason that I am as politically crazy as I am. Like, I agree. Yes. Yes. Same with me. Seeing it at the just the right age between like, uh, I don't know, eighth grade and 10th grade. Whenever I saw it for the first time, I was like, this makes me believe in the system. Like, it, it's essentially propaganda for a uh, Republican representative government where you send your you send your voices off to be heard in Washington. Like, yeah, that's what made me ch chase after politics for a little bit after school um, was was being like like the Mr. Smith thing. I was like, I think. This candidate, I think this candidate will will uh, represent my voice well. And instead, it was kind of viewed as it's just interesting how voices change over time. What's in, what's what else is interesting is that so I I saw Mr. Smith Young too, and of course I loved it. And like 
like schools talk about Mr. Smith and they show yes. scenes from mm-hmm. it as like an example of this is how Congress should work. And I think there's almost, as I mentioned, like a level of naivete around like, why aren't people better? I think there's almost an, even though I love both these movies and I do think they represent the best of what our economic system and our political system should be. I do think there's something almost like, I don't know if subversive is not the right word because it's the opposite of that. But like you said, propagandizing that like when you watch stuff like It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith goes to Washington and then you hear teachers and family members and adults tell you that like, yeah, this is what America's like. It does sort of lead to, again, a 35-year-old like myself sometimes still being like, man, I can't believe people are this evil. Like, look, this is this is what everyone agrees is like what America should be like. And it's not the movie's fault and doesn't take away from my enjoyment. But like we talked a lot th- about this, Peter, um, on our episode on Ravenous, where our country is so fucking good at propagandizing to children and ourselves about like this is what America is and this is how it does all these good things. And there's like these great movies that ever – you're right. Like showing It's a Wonderful Life or Mr. Smith Goes to Washington on NBC or you know all night on Christmas for It's a Wonderful Life. There's not like Fox News articles saying to take it down. Like everyone agrees this is good. But then the the effect of that is that when you start thinking that everyone thinks this is good, you start thinking that everyone shares the values of the movie. Unfortunately, that's like in a in a kind of a dirty way. These these um, these these pillars of like revolutionary cinema from and and as you mentioned, we're seeing at that time is that um, have kind of been turned to to kind of continue the propaganda cycle of like this is what America's like, and everyone agrees. I agree. Maybe a, a little bit of it too, and the way it was received at the time has to do with when you see it in your life too. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you, uh, Peter, you just said you saw it young. I saw it young. Uh, Aaron, I assume, you know, you know, people who at the time maybe were living in a very cynical, probably political time, just like we all are. But by the time you hit 30 and then 40 and then 50, you're just like, you're not open to the idealism the rampant idealism that Mr. Smith goes Washington just like bombards you with. And maybe that accounts for how it was taken at the time. Maybe that accounts for why we can love it. Having seen it at a tender young age. (laughs) Frank Capra was, it's also funny because Frank Capra was an immigrant, first generation immigrant to America who loved America with every drop of his blood and like, uh, worked on the war effort and like really like, bought into the American belief system and and saw certain people or certain uh, certain movements as being, you know, outsider to to the American movement. Like, that's why he would go after them. Like, he would talk about, like, uh, the big money bankers uh, he, he saw as uh, undermining people's faith in financial institutions. And to him, as somebody, especially someone who by 1946 was probably pretty well off, um, I don't have his tax returns, but he he probably saw that as like a, but my entire life has been bankrolled by, by you know, people who believed in me with the money and I'm seeing these like evil financial institutions in this past decade plus like grind Americans into the dirt. How do I want to address that? And, you know, and Mr. Smith, it's obviously like he's, he, he saw um, some of the yellow journalism in America and the press and um, 
you know, tabloid chasing and such. And he was like, oh, that also undermines people's faith in America. And so that's my other enemy. Like, he loved America so much. And that's why these movies, like, attracted some ire at the time from certain powers that be. And then now some of the, the, the political rhetoric can feel, like I was saying, like, it doesn't even register as, like, politically fiery or politically, um, uh, you know, uh, active in any way. It just registers as, like, a guy teasing journalists, a guy teasing rich guys. Like, in our modern parlance, like, things have at least progressed to the point where you can make fun of billionaires without seeming like you're a socialist. I'll mention this and then we can just kind of circle back to the plot and then go into the more the movie more um, less uh, just a general societal impact. But, you know, the thing about Frank Campra has always been – we've talked about this this the show before that one of my first things of, like, getting into cinema that was not just uh, just stuff that had come out in my generation when I was, like, in junior high and high school was, like, those AFI lists. And those AFI lists are littered with movies that were well-respected at the time and don't hold up very well. But they're also littered with a bunch of Frank Capra movies. And so as I was watching all of those, you could almost always tell when it was a Frank Capra movie because it didn't feel like something that was held in high esteem because it was held in high esteem for a movie made in the 30s. Like they they really do – like you go down that list of like it happened one night, Lost Horizon, Mr. Smith goes to Washington um, – uh, Mr. Deeds goes to town. Like, it's a wonderful life. Like, Arsenic and Old Lace. Like, all those movies, you can't take it with you. They feel, like, fresh and vibrant and, like, they're commenting. They have stuff to say about the modern times uh, or current times. And it's why I think It's a Wonderful Life is easy for kids to watch. Like, I think this was probably the first black and white movie, not that I saw, um, but the first one that I, like, loved as much as Raiders of the Lost Ark and some of the other stuff I was watching at the time, just because it it doesn't feel like eating your vegetables. It doesn't feel like doing your homework. It feels like a f- this vibrant film that feels, like, out of time. And some of that is because, Casey, like, as you mentioned, like, a couple things. One, all this stuff is still happening. And the other thing is that it feels so, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit about when, why I liked it so much, but, like... It also is about, like, a fucking parallel universe and stuff like that. And, like, that appealed to uh, me as a, as, a, as a young kid who loved sci-fi. Like, oh, he gets to see what he's like when he doesn't exist. It's like an alternate universe, like Star Trek. Um, you know, like, it felt modern in a way that a lot of other movies at the time didn't and still don't. You know, in, in the uh, – I, I touched on this briefly as well – There's so much about this movie that I think gets flattened out by its uh, its cultural image of this squeaky clean, uplifting movie that might have like a little downtrodden moment. But about, you know, after that, after a few minutes, you're going to get a good laugh. Like this is a movie about a man being a man who is strong and with a amazing constitution and an amazing upbringing and like just a a man with so much optimism for the world just overflowing with it just getting ground into the dirt and and tested in ways that like I, i think some people are only tested once in their life george bailey is run through the fucking ringer uh this whole movie and there's a there's a genuine sense in me that that as I get, I, Aaron mentioned this earlier, 
Every year that I get older, I identify with more and more of George Bailey's struggles. Aaron uh, pointed out the like sort of like sci-fi nerdiness of being like, well, what would my life be without me? But I, I register that like being separated from like high school depression era stuff uh, as being this is a man, even if the angel is not real, which I'm, and I think canonically in the movie he is real. But even if the angel is not real, whatever, this is a man standing on a bridge considering his life thinking about what his life would be without him or what his funeral would be like or whatever. That's like a very much a, a real thing that people can relate to when they're at their darkest, deepest place. And I think every year that goes on and I have a very good life. Like I'm very happy with my life. Would you say it's a wonderful life? I have a wonderful life. Like I have a lot of great support systems and you know, I am happy with who I am. Generally speaking, every year that goes on, there's more and more like, well, that was a dream I had to give up or oh, yeah. that was a big disappointment in my life or that's where I failed my family. That's where I failed myself. Do you guys kind of get any of that from as you get older? Like just like I, every year you're like, oh, oh, yeah. I completely understand and and agree with everything <laughs> you just said. Uh, I feel basically the exact same way. And honestly, it makes me wonder, uh, since we were talking a lot about Frank Capra, it makes me wonder about Frank Capra. I mean, you look at the movies that he made early on. Uh, it happened one night, and uh, even Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And these are, they're all like quicker, simpler movies. Um, you know, and even with heavier themes or, you know, like with, like in Mr. Smith goes to Washington, it's, they're, they're like quick to the point. They tell a simple story and move on. Then World War II happens, and the man goes off and, he immediately signs up and then he ends up making documentaries for the war effort the entire time. Uh, but as you were saying, Peter, that he was one of the most like pro America patriotic people probably working in Hollywood during the war, the war ends and he comes back and what does he make? You know, there's all the public reasons he stated for making this movie. I have to wonder how much he specifically identified with uh, with George specifically, and you look at this in comparison to his earlier movies, and it's just it's huge. It's an entire man's life. Yeah, it's and I also, I mean, I wonder how much he was influenced by the cinema coming out in the forties, like Citizen Citizen Kane, for instance, because it's it's unlike his earlier storytelling, at least as far as I I guess I haven't seen all of his all of his movies, but the ones that I have seen, it's it feels like a complete one eighty. Or not a complete 180, but a, a very significant evolution. It's even more unfortunate, and I guess World War II would do that to anybody. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. even after this movie, it's unfortunate that he, he bombed with this and then he made like two more movies, basically. And then his career was over. He didn't work for like the last 30 years yeah. of his life. And I, <laughs> you just have to think like, it's not that he gave up his dreams, but even after he makes this movie, he ends up losing the thing that he was most invested in, right? He loses yeah. his career. It's kind of taken away from him. And and he probably ended up feeling more like George than any than any any of us. Oh yeah. And and well and it wasn't just like it was definitely the fact that his movies bombed. Even though this was like nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. Like it just wasn't as mm. crowd pleasing as his his other movies. But like even though he was never named, he was always also like 
quasi blacklisted because yeah. everyone like thought he was like okay like this guy's definitely a little bit of a communist like we've seen his <laughs> movies um so yeah it was that sucks and like yeah you're right like but he still like he was pretty uh vocal and politically active in the 60s protesting the Vietnam War he it's it's it is amazing that he basically made masterpiece after masterpiece all these movies that we remember and then like this generally considered to be one of the best movies of all time uh, ruined his career. <laughs> so I think that we're, we're already quite a bit into this. I don't think that, and this is one of the most watched movies of all time, like just statistically, I don't think we need to go back in and do the plot. Everyone knows the plot of it. Yeah. So, so the, but the interesting thing about the plot, I will note. Okay. Yeah. Let's just get into what we want to talk the about. Length, about the, the length, the length of the segments is, and the structure of the movie is totally different than I remembered and I imagine for a lot of people remembered. I remembered George Bailey growing up, chaos slowly coming in, him falling down, the angels coming in then, having their conversation, and then sending down Clarence, and then Clarence stepping in. And I remember the, like, uh... So you thought it was like an in-media res thing and then it flashed back? Uh, yeah, and I, I, I remember Pottersville lasting longer, and I remember there being more of a celebration at the end, and because of that amazing SNL bit, oh, I, yeah. remembered, I remember it's not beating the shit out of him, but I remembered some sort of conflict with Potter, where he was like, Potter, you can keep the money you stole or whatever, because I've got friends or some, you know, whatever. Uh I'm not a screenwriter. the The movie is entirely different from that. The movie lets starts off with all these people praying and saying George Bailey is in trouble. I don't remember that growing up. I remember just like George Bailey growing up, George Bailey going through some shit, and Angel stepping in. Like I don't remember there being this sort of ominous cloud over the whole movie that like shit's gonna go bad for George. And I remember that like Pottersville, you know. Uh, post-attempted suicide sequence being way longer than it is. It's like 30 minutes? It's not even that. It's in the last 30 minutes of the movie and ends up being like a 15-minute segment. Like, And wisely, wisely, Frank Capra chose to put a the suicide of its protagonist as a third act, halfway through the second act twist. Not even twist, but you know, develop, like a huge Cause, yeah, development. Because the just, angels are just like, George Bailey's in trouble. Like, Would this movie work if George Bailey, like, jumped off a bridge at the beginning of the movie and then we have to go through his whole damn life before we find out that he – Yeah. He gets saved? I don't know. It would have been a much more grueling movie maybe. Maybe you always tuned in like 20 minutes into the movie because you were watching it on TV as a kid and like yes. uh, we weren't planning to watch it. So like, oh shit, hey, this is on. Let's – That is let's... very likely. Yeah. Yes. Um, is that uh, you catch it in fits and starts because it yeah. is a long ass movie. But yeah, I, I just wanted to talk about. We don't have to go through the plot recap. Everyone's seen this movie. The structure of it and the length of each act was completely different than what I remembered. Yeah. I, the one there's actually was a part. Uh, I used to try to watch this every year, but it's been a couple years. Uh, and the last time I watched it was uh, at three in the morning, wasted off my ass. The night uh, Donald Trump was elected. Um, so, uh, oh my God, man! Why would you do that to yourself? I needed to feel something positive, and this is the most. Um, wow. 
we we mentioned this a little. Like, I will sometimes get choked up at movies. I will, you know, have a tear here and there, especially if it's like a, more if it's like something positive and emotionally uh, fulfilling. In, in the same way that, like, I don't usually cry at sad movies necessarily, but like. You know, the typical, like, Field of Dreams finally gets to play catch with his dad. Like, those things will choke me up. And a lot of other, like, Inside Out is a is a good one, especially since having kids. That, like, you know, the joy of her going back to her parents and realizing all this stuff. Like, those, those movies get me choked up and a tear or two will fall out. This movie is different than fucking every other movie in the way that it affects me. In a way that at this point is just, like, Pavlovian. Because I've seen it so many times. Even though I'm always engaged, it's it's... It is almost amazing that the second he walks back into his house that I am like, I'm glad Shauna didn't watch it with me because it's like a gross cry. Like it is just, just tears pouring down my face, like sniffling. Like it, it's, I was like a sl- half asleep this time. I was tired. It was late. It's all you, like you said, it's a long movie. And all of a sudden my body just like reacted to stimuli in a way that, I wasn't even, like, emotionally or, like, mentally processing, but it's like, oh, it's this part. All right. Let her loose. It's just – it's I am it's bizarre the way I that you said that movie. because I can no longer watch this with other people, at least not the end because, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, like you said, it's a gross cry. I kind of lose control and it's, it is Pavlovian because I think even this time and I'm watching the middle of the movie. I'm not even close to the end and I – for just a brief second, think about the end. Yeah. And think about the the part where his brother walks in and says to George Bailey, the richest man in town. And I started yeah. crying then. And I was only halfway through the movie. And just from the mere thought of what I knew was about to take place. Yeah. No, it's exact same. Like, you just mentioned that part now and I had to fight it. It is yeah. not – even like I'm I'm not emotionally engaged. Like I'm not like but there is just something about that whole last like five or six minutes that just turns me into a complete blubbering mess. And like a very like I am scared for the point that I watch this with my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> because it's gonna be like, Dad, what is wrong? <laughs> like it's not gonna be mm-hmm. healthy. Like I'm gonna be like, All right, well here's the ending. I'm gonna go take like a ten minute dump. Uh hopefully I don't miss the entire I'll be back. Uh, oh, I missed it. Oh, no. As I come back with tears streaming <laughs> I, down my eyes from the bathroom, just thinking about it. You know, if, you, you, if know. you stay there, though, it might be the healthiest moment of your entire no, relationship with your daughter. <laughs> no. We've already had that conversation many times about, like, because I've watched Inside Out with her, and that gets me, uh, you know. So, we've had that conversation. But, again, I think there is a difference between, like, this is emotionally connecting with me and, like, I'm a mess. Yeah. <laughs> no one look at me. So... Uh, I, I, we've talked about this on the show before, is that I am not normally a movie crier and I am trying to be, like I'm working harder at being a movie crier uh, because I, I think that's just part of, maybe it's like uh, toxic masculinity or something. Like I'm trying to let myself go more instead of just like, you know, sniffing it up and like being like, no, I'm good. I'm good. Um <laughs> And I'm trying to let it go. I see it as, as a foible in myself that I can't cry more. And uh, recently, I just a few things have tapped into it. And uh, the one thing is, the one Christmas story every year that, that gets me is the first episode of the – the first aired episodes of The Simpsons. Uh, Simpsons roasting on an open fire. 
And it's the it's a Christmas episode where Bart fucks up and costs the family a large chunk of money. That's what happens. And uh, he's just trying so, so hard to get his family like back on their feet and back on their feet and like uh, get his family a good Christmas. Like he doesn't want to disappoint them as a father. This is early Homer before he went full like dummy evil, almost Peter Griffin Homer. And then at the end of the at the end of the day, he fails because of just getting paid poorly, which is not his fault. And they end up getting the dog, Santa's little helper, through. Oh, an I know. He's he signs up to be a, a Santa Claus at the mall, doesn't yes. he? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and they pay him jack shit like because six he bucks. Had to take a training class or whatever. Yes, and he has nothing, and they just take it to the fucking racetrack with the dogs and then the dog they bet on a dog the dog loses and in the parking lot the guy is just like you know get out of here you loser dog and then the dog runs at homer and uh, <laughs> uh st- almost started crying talking about it it is uh, funny uh, that we didn't do a plot that, like, recap of it's a wonderful life but we did do one of the first episodes <laughs> <laughs> but the, but that that's something interesting about uh i do have a i do have like a love for christmas yes but like i have these sort of stories about someone working through some sort of hardship because they're trying so hard to be a good a good member of their family and a good member of their community and like not disappoint everyone like <laughs> makes me like that's what breaks me is is especially in these times of joy where everyone seems to be so so happy and someone's like working so hard just to make sure that their family has like enough like that destroys me and that's why it's a wonderful life taps into that same space with that ending yeah that wanting to be connected with your community like that like for me i think i mentioned this at the start of the podcast is like i don't think i could ever be worthy of the love and adoration that george (laughs) bailey gets in that moment from that time (laughs) like it was just impossible and you see the look on jimmy stewart's face and there's there's no there's no hint of that emotion or that feeling running through him he's just like yes yes finally i everyone recognizes it i definitely do deserve all this and i'm like somehow That's not a knock on George Bailey. George Bailey is fucking awesome. But just my response to this movie is always that I would just have my Catholic guilt would be going off in that moment. I'd be like, no, no, I can't take all this money. What are you guys? No, no, no. I don't deserve this and that. Yeah, I'd be in the same boat. I'd be like, you know, I'll just go to jail to be polite. (laughs) Uh, uh, But there's two things going on. One, movies are bigger than real life like you know movies that's one of the amazing things about movies is that can they can tap into you know you're not just in love with the girl you're in love with the girl and suddenly you can tap dance i don't think that what they were doing was tap dancing in that we'll see (laughs) but continue (laughs) the the other thing happening is that like i think george bailey legitimately I, th- I think Frank Capper read the story of Job and he went, this is bullshit. <laughs> like, and he was like, he's like, he should be rewarded for being such a good guy. God could do anything. Why would you? And he, he just came in. He was like, all right. So, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to run this guy into the dirt. He's going to have a great family that almost gets destroyed. He's going to have this this villain constantly bearing down on him throughout every part of his life. Like he's going to constantly be disappointed by like. Just basic decency. Like, he's put through so many challenges that, like, I don't think normal people are 
put through um, in the course of a lifetime. Like, he is constantly asked to make choices that are so much bigger than him. Like, him him constantly choosing to give up all of his dreams, but for the people of his community is something that I think is, is so epic and large that, like, we can't really relate. We can. We can relate to it, but we can't. Uh, we've not, I don't think any of us have had a, a job so important as, like, keeping people's mortgages afloat. Um well, here's what's interesting, though, about that and something I really wanted to touch on. Because so he deserves, he deserves the joy in the end is what I'm saying, basically. He, yeah, and he does. And I understand that that fear as well. Um, having kids helps because your kids right now anyways, like, look at you that way all the time with, like, little things. So that's kind of changed a lot of my perception of this movie um, from, like, before I had kids uh, where it did feel a lot more like – Oh, no one could ever look at me with that much, like, love in their <laughs> eyes. Uh, but, yeah, have kids and, like, be nice to them and you can get that. It's really easy. You have to save a lot of money for other things, but it's a good way to get that feeling. Um, but I do think that something that gets missed about George Bailey, he is a really good person. He is amazing, as you guys have both said. But I think there's an expectation of people, of themselves, that when they do good things – and they do like selfless things and they make good decisions, whether that's volunteering or giving to charity or, yeah, pushing aside your dreams and your hopes and for something that you want um, in order to make other people's lives better, that that should bring you personal satisfaction and joy. And when people don't get that feeling or don't feel that way, it almost inspires them that to not pursue doing these kind of like inarguably good works for people because they human beings have an expectation that if they do a good thing they get the endorphins they may not get exactly what they want but they feel good about themselves and i i really do think what george bailey um epitomizes is he's never like personally satisfied with most of the decisions that he's forced to confront that are outside of his control from not going on any of his adventures to um even like buying the house that he didn't want and all these other things. Like he makes the right decision and he does the right thing, but he doesn't get any personal pleasure necessarily from it in the moment. It's only at, you know, age 35 or 40 or whatever the ending is that he realizes, truly, truly realizes that he is happy and all of these these decisions that he has made or he feels that were forced upon him have caused him like personal happiness and satisfaction. He just never looked that way. I always I think that's so important because it, that is something that doesn't get talked about that often. That like these these selfless acts for a lot of people still give them a personal satisfaction. There was there was a friends episode about this that you can't really do a truly selfless deed because you know, giving money to charity makes you feel good and all this stuff. And what we have here is George who does all these selfless deeds that bring him no pleasure. And that's important too. It is important to do the right thing in a way that really does inconvenience you or make your life worse because it is the right thing to do. I just think that's something that gets glossed over in our society. I think that's an expectation that people have for themselves. And I'm always struck by – uh, you know, one I, <laughs> I've left a lot of uh, what I learned in Catholic school and Catholic church and stuff like that uh, aside. But there is still one story that I remember this this great priest told me once. Uh, we were in a, I, I went to public school, but they were teaching our 
uh, CCD class or whatever they, they had for us. And he was teaching us and he asked a question of the class like uh, about a homeless man who he's like, he's a homeless man. He's, he's dying for money. Um, and this, this guy stops and he looks at the homeless man and goes, oh, get away from me. You stink. Blah, blah, blah. And he gives that homeless man $100 just to get away from him and gets away from him as fast as possible. And then this next guy comes along and that guy, you know, listens and hears his story and cries along with him and spends time with him. And at the end, he gives him $5. And the question to the class was, who did the better deed that day? And everyone in the class was like, it's the... It's the person who gave the $5 out of the goodness of his heart because he wanted to and he cared about the homeless man and blah, blah, blah. And, like, everyone in the class said that. And at the end of it, he goes, okay, now pretend you're the homeless man. Who did the better deed for you that day? And most of the people in the class changed answers. They said, well, yeah, I guess if I was homeless, I'd probably want the $100 more than the $5. And I think about that all the time, especially in relation to this movie, because – Sometimes you you can you don't need to always do the right thing out of the kindness of your heart to have a monumental impact on someone's life. Yeah, I I I think that's a great I think that's a great analogy because I think that I was about to point out that my favorite George Bailey moment in the movie is actually a very ugly George Bailey moment because it's so relatable. It's when George Bailey and his uh, his his uh, wife Mary have just put the martinis in their house in Bailey Fields. Oh, yeah. Bailey Fields. Yeah. A- and uh, George Steinman. What's the guy? Michael Steinman. What's the guy that Mary was supposed to hook up with? Oh, hee haw, whatever. Charlie. Yeah. Sam, Who's Donkey Sam Boy? Sam Wainwright. Sam Wainwright. Sam Wainwright. Sam Wainwright. Um. Who's also a good person, but it just didn't work out between him and Mary because Sam Wainwright had his own interests. Blah, 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 was blah, fucking blah. his secretary. He was fucking <laughs> his secretary, clearly. Um, that's why – that's also – the movie does little things like that to kind of like get you even more on George's side. You're like, well, yeah, George is technically stealing this girl out from underneath like this like – she's supposed to be courting this guy and she's literally making out with George on the phone while he's on the other line. But whatever. So the most human moment and the most relatable moment for me in the film with George, he has just passed up this fun Florida vacation, which I think in the 40s would be like a lot more glamorous than it seems now. Like the idea of going down to Florida for a couple weeks for a vacation would probably seem somewhat exotic, I think, for someone in the 40s from – is this – what is this in like Pennsylvania, Connecticut? I'm not sure where it's at, actually. Where would Bedford Falls be? Any town, USA. It's it might be it might be the East Coast, but it might be Middle America, like in uh, Indiana and Illinois, because they get a lot of snow. Whatever. He basically it's going to be like uh, far enough that it would be like a kind of fun trip, and uh, (laughs) and he's basically being offered by this friend to like come down and have like a blast with him, and he would probably foot a lot of the bill, but he can't because George Bailey has fucking priorities he has shit to do to help the community and george bailey just like he says like bye with his big friendly jimmy stewart demeanor and then kicks the door closed to his car that to me is the most relatable george bailey moment you do something that's like the right thing to do and then you're like well, that fucking hurt. I didn't want to do that but it's the right thing to do like that that is something that happens to you in life when you 
are a human being. You're not, it doesn't mean you're a worse person. There is literally no such thing as a Mother Teresa. Even she was a sinner. Like, there is no such thing. Oh, yeah, she like was a, the worst. She was kind of <laughs> shitty. Yeah. Um, she loved suffering. She, like, yeah. really delved in it. Um, I, uh, I, I don't know. What what moment in the movie do you did you catch yourself most being, most relating to George Bailey? Like, Obviously, there's ugly moments later in the movie when he's, like, upset with his family and stuff that's, like, also relatable because you're, like, there are times in life where you're not a pretty person. But, I don't know. Is there any moment in the movie where you're, like, I am George Bailey? I think one that, again, is a, is kind of a new one for me. Like, the way that he hugs uh, Zuzu. That's not right. Is the, yeah, the sick daughter in bed? Zuzu, yeah. yeah. The way, like, when he comes home from that terrible day and thinks he's going to jail and, like, she's talking to him, she just, he just picks him up and, like, hugs her in, like, a way that is, like, I just need this little person who loves me so much that I can never let down because my day has been shit. Like, I know what that hug feels like very much where you're not even necessarily doing it for the kid's benefit. Just, like, hold on. Just let me. Okay, you're my kid. I love you. I get to, I'm a dad. I can't, I can't disappoint you right now. You're four. Like, that's when you've had a terrible, terrible fucking day. Like, I, I that that hug is very recognizable to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's also recognizable. I don't have any kids, but it is recognizable to me in the sense where you're like. I can see you hugging I, Juno, your dog, that way. Yeah. I, I do that sometimes when I have a really shitty day or I've been traveling and it's like it's been just disappointment after disappointment. I'm just like, yeah, like you probably are miserable right now, you little 60 pound dog, <laughs> but I need this hug, you furry little <laughs> motherfucker. Um, yeah, Casey, you know, is there a moment in the movie that you like really like a George Bailey moment that you're like, that, that impresses you? Because Jimmy Stewart is so impressive. I've already, I've always liked the moment when he's talking to his dad at the dinner table really early in the movie. And everyone else has left the table and he, his dad wants him to stay in town and work with him. And he spends, you know, takes a minute to try and explain to his dad why he has to leave. Why, why it's so important to him that he get out. For me, I've always felt this urge to, you know, get out further and see more of everything and not be mm -hmm. stuck in one place. And it's ultimately why I end up identifying with him and with the movie so much. But this part early on, just very casual, just like having to explain what's important to you, to other people who won't necessarily understand or feel this same way you do. Like I get that. That's tough. And uh, I think it's a good oh, under yeah. understated early moment in the movie. And Jimmy Stewart is so good at communicating that like youthful exuberance that he's just like, I'm going to take on the world, but it doesn't feel fake at all. Like he does seem like he's, he has legitimately aged 20 years or 25 years over the course of the movie with like a minimal yeah. or like makeup and like hair stuff. He, in those first few scenes where he's like, pushing the candle for good luck. He seems like he is like 25 years older. It is almost like they use the Ant-Man Michael Douglas technology. Um that's how that's how convincing he is playing youthful exuberance and like world wary at that level. And then yeah, he just he just let's let's talk about how much he kills it because he is I mean, unsurprisingly, uh seeing this movie at a young age, Jimmy Stewart became like my favorite 
old timey actor. It helped too that like he was parodied on stuff I was watching a lot, like Saturday Night Live. So <laughs> Dana Carvey, that Dana Carvey yeah. parody of "It's a Wonderful Life" is is totally yeah. worth watching after you watch the movie. If you're like still mad at Mr. Potter, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very it's it's a great sketch. Um, but yeah, that and like I remember, uh, and he's the easiest the person fr- to imitate, you know, yourself. Yeah, and, 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 and having you seen this movie too, Mary? you're just like. Clarence, Clarence, you just—that's the easiest thing to do in the world. Um, yeah, and he, like, I'm—he also is very good at playing drunk. Uh, I'm not surprised he was cast in Harvey a few years <laughs> after this. He is so good at playing drunk, but I think it's because I don't know if he was ad libbing at a time that like they just didn't do that that much in movies. But it does. It is amazing how natural everything that mm-hmm. comes out of his mouth is like he's just thought of it and he sang it. And that's especially notable because this is like pre-method acting. It's pre-Brando in that revolution. And he's still big, but he's not big in the way that a lot of other actors of the time were where it felt like they were giving a stage performance. Like Jimmy Stewart is so good in these movies in the 30s and 40s and 50s because he – Feels like he was doing method acting before method acting was a thing where he is wholly inhabiting the characters that he plays. And in a way that like, you know, I love Cary Grant too, but like Cary Grant felt like he was being Cary Grant. He was putting on a show mm-hmm. and, a, and a lot of them did. Jimmy Stewart felt like he was like, he was George Bailey. He was Mr. Smith. Um, so let me ask you this. He still is. Yeah. Is this Jimmy Stewart's best performance? I'm going to say it definitely 100% is, but the flip side is I've he is in so many great movies, a lot of them great because of his performances. I don't think I've ever seen a bad performance from it him, is, and I've seen a lot of Jimmy Stewart movies. It is crazy, though, that, like, Jimmy Stewart is so easy to parody because of his, like, weird warble. <laughs> yeah. um, when I watch this movie, like, I... I don't see the Dana Carvey impression. I don't see, you know, a million stand like, uh, you know, Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey or improv groups doing an impression of him. I just see like this wonderfully nuanced portrait of what a man is throughout his life. And I just like start I just like start crying at different points in this movie because of how relatable it is to see to see how well he vacillates between tones and then so jumping back really far casey what you said earlier is so true that he this movie frank demonstrate yeah, this movie demonstrates frank capra's growth as an artist and as a person and that he can vacillate between tones with such grace like he can he can take a moment that's jubilant and wonderful and like makes you overflow with like frantic joy like the wedding scene and then just ease you into just terror and submission in the way that like the they're making a run on the bank right after the wedding that's a great um and then they grind you down all the way down there and then you see Jimmy Stewart's trying to, like, pick his staff back up. He's like, we got the $2. We got a mom and papa dollar. We'll put them in the safe and maybe they'll fuck. And um, <laughs> and then and then he's leaving and he's like, it was clearly a little bit of a show because he's leaving and he's soaked to the boots and he's so depressed. 
and he's he's just he doing, he's like following orders basically he's like just tell me where my wife is like i just want to know where my wife is i, I just want to be with her or wherever we're not going to be in italy tonight but we'll be together at least and the way that mary just drops that surprise on him and yeah. the way he just like slowly lights up like at first he's like this house is a piece of shit and then he just slowly lights up is like it demonstrates how amazing of an actor Jimmy Stewart is, how great of a director Frank Capra is, and also how Frank Capra imbues humanity and interesting characteristics in characters that, like, in other movies would be just uh, the serving wife. Because Mary, Mary's amazing. Yeah, let's talk about Donna Reed. Uh, she's so good in this movie. Also, uh, she's, like, the most – they they don't have to do a lot of that greasy lens stuff, uh, the, the you know, the waxed lens stuff here. She's just like the prettiest person. Can I just yeah. say quickly before we get deeper on this yeah. that as a young kid, I completely thought she was Ingrid Bergman for the first few years that I watched this. <laughs> I just, yeah. yeah, they definitely they, they definitely look uh, similar. And I, I watched this before, like I knew – who Donna Reed was. And as I started to watch other movies uh, from this era, like Jimmy Stewart popped up in a lot of them and it was disappointing that Donna Reed didn't. Yeah. She just, uh, she obviously had the Donna Reed show, which was kind of her big thing after this. And she was in other movies, but um, she was just never as prevalent in, in film as a lot of other actors of her generation. But her and George's chemistry is effervescent and feels it feels natural in a way that most romances from the 30s and 40s and 50s don't. It does not feel like it's put on. It just it really feels like two people falling in love. It feels like two people flirting. And if I did have a big criticism of this film, besides not presenting a PowerPoint presentation on how banking works, uh, the other criticism I would have is that she kind of disappears in the back half. And when she does reappear... She doesn't get to be as, like, light and have all these great character moments on her own that she does in the first half. And she basically saves the day. Like, she is constantly working behind the scenes and, like, being playing the role of a dutiful wife. But um, you're right. There's, there's not those great, like, character reveals. She's mostly terrified um, of George in the modern day. <laughs> or just, like, you're seeing, you're seeing George's, like depression and lost dreams through her prism and she's like trying to support him but you don't really you don't really get a sense anymore of like what she wants as a character where in the first half you do get a very good sense of what she wants as a character which is george uh but then after that she just she ends up just kind of being a you know only uh, one person in that relationship has a college degree and it ain't george <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> I will say that, like, as somebody who tries very hard to be, like, getting into these, like, big romantic gestures and was – that which was very helpful when I was younger and now that I get older, like, there's a lot more that you need to learn about long-term relationships. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I bet you all three of us could probably talk quite a bit about misguided attempts to always do the big thing that we saw in movies and television shows. Oh, oh yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I will say my biggest uh, crime definitely in the early 2000s was watching too much How I Met Your Mother and thinking more Ted Mosby stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was I was into that too. And there's a uh, there's but the interesting thing about that show is that Ted Mosby would 
fail as much as he would succeed at the big Ted Mosby stuff, but it would feel so good mm-hmm. when he would succeed. But mm-hmm. I think really like growing up and watching this movie just in bits and pieces, I was so struck by how romantic Mary is and yeah. how hard she tries and the way that like when she fails at that sort of romance, um, like when she draws the picture of George lassoing the moon and she puts on the record for him, how she feels it. Like she feels that sense of disappointment. And Frank Capra took some time to make Mary a real character, at least in the first half, first two acts, whatever. Yeah. Um, you're, you feel her disappointment because also she's – even though George Bailey is a big larger-than-life figure in a lot of ways, like she's the one that does all the big romantic gestures. She gets them the house. She makes them connect. She uh, makes – she saves the day for George. Like she's the – she is the like the romancer of the, of the couple, which I love. She's not just this like pretty little doll that George manages to swoop up. Yeah, the only thing, like I said, is missing is that, like, she has, like, goals in the first half. She wants the house. She wants George. This is what she wants. And she is pretty clear about what those goals are. And she, like you said, she makes a lot of grand gestures to get what she wants. And I don't know what she wants in the last half besides make my husband happier, which is not, like, a a terrible, but it's uh, but it, it lacks uh, – Lacks the level of agency that she has in the first. Yeah, they they could have made up for that at least by not making her an old maid librarian in the uh, alternate universe. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, well, the biggest the biggest thing that George George did for Mary is by being together kept her eyesight, fed her a lot of carrots. Um, (laughs) She didn't have to wear glasses. Mary, finish your stew, Mary. I well, I picked it just for you, Mary. <laughs> um, Mary, it's hummus, Mary. It goes great with carrots. Your vision is already gone from 2020 to 2040. Next is going to be glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Mary needed glasses in all the versions, but she was like, Mary, don't get yeah. those Coke bottles on. They cover up your whole pretty yeah. face. Yeah, just bump into things. It's the <laughs> 40s. <laughs> Um, I do like the the dramatic pause at two. You're not gonna like it. What? Where's Mary? She works at a library. <laughs> what? No! What was the deal with that? Like he, <laughs> like I guess also he was trying to protect this alternate version, uh, Mary, uh, being like. When George sees you, he is going to be a fucking weirdo. <laughs> I, I like those little, like, weird alternate universe things. Um, it doesn't bother me, like, in a nitpicker thing, but, like, somehow George affected the weather pattern at some point because it, it's if he's dead, it doesn't snow that night. But oh, if yeah. If he's, if he's alive. It's, I get it. It's a great, like, it's a, it's a very important visual representation. So, you know when he's out of it in a way that, like, so it's great. But it is it is funny all those little like oh Mary wears glasses and it snows. <laughs> you really are like a little butterfly effect, <laughs> flapping your little wings. Yeah, I, so we should probably move into like final moments, right, Aaron? Uh, yeah, let's let's just go through scenes or little moments we didn't get a chance to talk about. I didn't even realize we were uh, we were close to two hours already. I mean, we could do four hours on this movie just because it's so dense. Like, it uses its two hours and ten minutes so amazingly well. Can we talk about the rampant child labor going on in Bedford Falls? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Little George, especially working in that that prescription shop, 
and uh he gets the for some shit reason beat out of him yeah <laughs> he's like he's like uh hey uh boss don't give poison to nobody ow ow, ow. yeah he really gets the like he his ears bleeding <laughs> like <laughs> like that's just not like a little punch in the nose like he beats the shit out of his bad ear it shows you how much I think uh, hitting your kids had been uh, normalized mm-hmm. at the time because I or or maybe, you know, like for the audience of the time, they were like, well, I don't hit my kids, but my dad did. I think the audience at the time probably watched it and said, great way to discipline. Uh, but in this particular case, obviously, it wasn't the best use of a very normal punishment, which is to and punch I- your kid in the face. I have to point out really quickly there. Don't punch out. Don't punch kids. Like, you can just have a conversation. The more you know. Can we Can we even talk about really quickly the fact that that moment when we see um, who's who's the owner of the shop, Mister Gower? Yeah, yeah. Mister Mister Gower drinking behind the curtain or behind the glass. That lets you know. I think within fifteen minutes of the movie starting that this is not some. Leave it to Beaver bullshit. This is a real town with real problems and people are going through some shit. And I think that that like totally helps nullify that uh, feeling that people would have about this movie where you might be like, oh, this is just some wholesome family bullshit. Like, no, this movie gets dark and and plums the depths of the human experience but just in a 1940s context i also uh, this is probably another petty small moment but (laughs) joseph kind of a dick uh yeah yeah, well there's god joseph and clarence right joseph is just an asshole (laughs) about clarence he says he's got the iq of a rabbit and then even though they've been discussing it for minutes already he says oh i forgot you haven't got your wings yet like just a absolute <laughs> dick to clarence yeah some hardcore passive aggressiveness yeah like, he knows joseph knows about the wing situation uh he's just rubbing a- it in his fucking face yeah angels aren't angels apparently angels are kind of personable and weird and full of their, their foibles um would you say they're very- angels with dirty faces they are angels with dirty faces much like we didn't reference it on the home alone episode so we're gonna reference it here (laughs) also i have another question why are there so many adults at a high school dance (laughs) they're they're making sure no one charleston's too hard Uh, it leaves some room for the holy spirit and that uh that uh mississippi slide dance but then like all the chaperones are just allowed to like dance with all the high school girls is that is that part of the deal and no, but it doesn't. It doesn't help that everyone looks thirty-five as well. Like <laughs> I know George Bailey is supposed to be four years older than uh, than Mary and her date at the dance, but him swooping in on Mary and her her apparently very boring date is uh, even weirder. Considering that Jimmy Stewart was like whatever thirty-five when he made this movie. How old was Jimmy Stewart? Everyone Probably. looks thirty years older than they are up until like the nineteen eighties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's also just the way people talk and everything. But yeah, I love that that sequence where the pool just opens up in the middle of the dance floor. Great sequence, yeah. That Great. I remember that being the sequence that as a kid, like, pools were cool. 
and the idea of a pool under the, like yeah. that part is the first part of the movie that I'm like, oh, I'm in. Like I like what I'm seeing because before that's a lot of good table setting and you see, you know, the kid getting beaten and the you know the sled that moment sticks with you and even like if you only watch that middle part of the movie and then you go back and watch it like the next year for christmas yeah like you're like oh yeah this movie with the pool under the gym sweet yeah i'll watch more of this and then you somehow over three years actually finish the entire movie (laughs) is that how (laughs) long it took you to watch it the first time i mean that's what i I was trying to think when i first saw this movie and i don't I can't remember a single time. Like, it's just ingrained in me that every Christmas Eve it was on, and I would watch at least part of it, and eventually I knew every part of the movie, and I don't remember when that happened. It's in that memory muck where you're like, okay, I remember a time I watched it when I was young, but I don't remember the time I watched it when I was young. Yeah. Um, uh, so, apparently, Jimmy Stewart was 37, 38 when he made this movie. Um, well, I think what helps is that it is, it is funny to think of a time that obviously this did happen that like high school and college kids are like singing the hit new song, Buffalo Gals, Won't You Come Out Tonight. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, like it's a freaking like, banger. It's, you yeah. can't deny it's a banger. Adding lyrics to, to songs was new in general. So they were just happy to sing along like, oh, this isn't just an instrumental. This is nice. One one more stupid question. One more stupid question. Yeah. Yes, go on. How many innocent people died the night of the alternate universe where George is in Bedford Falls? Because Bert unloads his gun on an entire street of bystanders. <laughs> oh, my God. I forgot about that. George punches Bert out earlier and then he punches him again. And then, and then Bert's like... Now's the time for him to hit my six iron. And he just starts, he just starts clobbering that street. And I'm pretty sure the, uh, there was an entire, um, car of orphans that were lit up. Um, it basically turned into like the cop driven mass shooting at that point. Cause he is just firing over and over again at George. And it's like, I mean, he's, he's away from you, buddy. Do you? What's going on here? Yeah, he's not – and he's also not aiming, which is important if you're going to fire. He's just, well, just in, like, the 40s you, in the 40s, you weren't allowed to aim. They hadn't invented it yet. That's because, uh, like, if you got hit with a bullet from the 40s, like, it might just hurt you a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> like a you, actually, you can actually only hit people with your uh, bullets in the 40s if you're smoking a cigar. <laughs> Point blank range. Those are the rules. <laughs> you could be pointing it anywhere, and as long as you were smoking a cigar, just heat-seeking bullets right to the target. I do yeah. love that in the 30s and 40s and 50s, they they would do certain actions the way that like a kid would do them if you gave them a fake version of it. Like whenever they're driving a car, they're moving the steering wheel, you know incredibly violently back and forth like they've never driven a real car before but like you give me this wheel i'm gonna move it and like when they shoot guns in a lot of these movies like this one his actions match how he should probably be saying bang bang out loud because he's like shooting and then pulling the gun up way in the air and doing that every time like uh, a little bit a little bit of maybe some old theater things that are uh, haven't been smoothed out on the silver screen yet Yeah. Um, so I I have a few just quick notes. Um, first of all, we haven't said it yet, but I think we all agree that Tom can go fuck himself pretty hard. Yeah, uh, I'd agree. If you don't remember who Tom is, he's the guy that still wants all two hundred forty-two dollars, <laughs> even after he explains the whole thing. Fuck, uh, you, fuck Tom. you, Tom. 
Um, I'm glad that Donna Reed really wanted that house. But as someone who is a homeowner myself, uh, that much water damage, you're, you're not going to be able to fix that with a little bit of remodeling. Like, a little bit of stairs does not change the fact that every time it rains... Every single thing is covered in water. I think this for, movie. For years. I think this movie really influenced my fear of homeownership. Uh, yeah, for that very reason, you I, find out very quickly as a homeowner that water is your worst enemy. I mean, and uh, uh, you got to assume that George gets done with work every day, comes home, and just works on the fucking house all weekend. Yeah, too, you know, like to get it in the state where they could actually live in it with four children and not have them all die from exposure. So. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, there's no fucking Lowe's or Home Depot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, how did they do that? Uh also say that uh Billy may be terrible and forgetful, but he somehow keeps both an owl and a squirrel as pets, and both of those things are alive. So he may not be great that, at banking that is actually, or remembering things. That is actually a raven, I believe. No, there's an owl, there's an owl on the desk there? too. When, he, when you see him at his house and he has oh, animals okay. everywhere, there's a squirrel and an owl. And they're clearly doing well together. So, you know, everyone has their genius and he shouldn't have been in baking. But clearly, zookeeper, um, exotic pet dealer was Billy's calling. I don't know about zookeeper because, like, the string on the finger thing, like, the, the animals would just eat the, the string right off your fingers, presumably, if you had more than just a squirrel. Yeah, true. Oh, yeah. Don't feed. Ju- don't take a nap in the lion's uh, cage. That's what that string. Does. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm all. I'm, I'm fine with the movie saving the day at the end. But Uncle Billy did need to be ridden out of town on a rail. Yeah. How many weeks do you think it, it is after this that George Bailey uh, let Uncle Billy handle another large envelope of cash? Because I'm pretty sure within four weeks. George Bailey was already like, all right, Uncle Billy, make sure you don't lose this $25,000. Well, I think Billy was definitely fired that night. It really depends oh, on what he does with all that out of a money that all those people bring him, right? And the $25,000 uh, loan that Sam Wainwright gives him, right? Like, what does he do with that money? What does he do the day after this movie ends? Like, does he finally get a vacation? Like, all the man wants to do is go on a fucking vacation. That'd be nice. He did earn it. He's done it for, based on his age at the end, 80 years. The last uh, last kind of jokey thing is that I am glad that Bert and Ernie are still friends in the alternate universe. They have a good relationship. <laughs> it's not explored that much. Everything else changes, but those two still have each other's backs. That's nice. Um, and then we talked a, little, a lot about how much the ending gets us. You mentioned the brother coming home is the part that really, really sets you off, Casey. Um, yeah. I have a moment as well. The brother part is like that. I mean, there's so many little moments, but the one that turns me from tears streaming down my face to like a blubbering mess is when the bank examiner, that look that he gives him when he tosses money and then starts belting it out into song. Oh my God. That part is what kills me. I don't know why, but there is just something about this, like the goodness of George Bailey's being so undeniable that this little squirrely bank examiner that like seemed to uh, really kind of want to prove that they've done something wrong and that they're not not working from the the best place. Even he seeing how much joy George Bailey has um, has brought people 
gets into the spirit, donates money, and then just lets loose singing. Like, there is something about, like, the idea of the coldest heart, the Grinch-type heart being turned, you know, growing three sizes that, like, really puts me over the edge from an emotional response to this movie. I just got chills thinking about that moment. So, yeah, I completely agree. (laughs) So, Peter, do you have uh, anything else before we go to final thoughts here? Um, I just have final thoughts. Um, Great. I uh, this is a movie that when I last watched it I was probably 22. Um didn't choke me up at all, but I just thought it was a very uh, good piece of filmmaking. And when I watched it uh now uh as I'm about to get married, as I'm thinking about things like mortgages and having children and like where we want to spend our money and uh you know the state of the world, the the cynical, awful, dark state of the world. This movie hit me really hard this time. I was crying maybe from 45 minutes in to the end. Um it's not a movie that makes me cry because it, it is making me see some sort of idealistic, impossible vision of the world. It's a movie that makes me cry because it it show it, it it tells me things that I needed to hear, whether or not I know I needed to hear them. And because of that, it just it it, it hits you way harder. It's like a sneak attack. It gets past your Maginot line. I didn't expect that this time at all. I was just expecting this, like, heartwarming Christmas tale. But this is actually a movie you can watch all year round if you're ever feeling hopeless or you ever feel like the the world is just stepping on you. Election Act 2016. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, both a little masochistic and I get why you did it. Um, But the movie exists as this wonderful piece of the human experience. And I think this is going to stand out for – Hundreds of years is one of the examples of like what filmmaking is, what the human experience is and like could really represent, I think, for like how Americans feel anxiety about their future and how humans feel anxiety about their future. Because it's, you know, yes, it's 80 years old, but it's still so goddamn relatable on every level. And uh, yeah, it, it deserves every – I know this is a boring thing to say. It deserves every part of its status. So, yeah, for my final thoughts, it's um, – I think Peter and I talk a lot about on the show how we try not to put best labels on things. Even when we're creating like our own top 100 list, we're usually pretty clear about like these are our favorite 100 movies. Because I understand it's very hard to, like, say objectively what the best movie of all time is, even though that's what, like, Sight and Sound and AFI and all these other things attempt to do as, like, a consensus of what's the best as opposed to favorites. Uh, And typically, I and Peter have shied away from from that in our own uh, personal personal way that we describe our love of movies. This is, like, the exception for me that, like, I'm not saying this is the best movie of all time, but – I wouldn't fight anyone who said it was like when I see those lists um, of like the best movies of all time, this is the one that I look for on it. Like how high did this one get? Even, even though there's tons of movies on those from 2001 to good, the bad and the ugly that I love, 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 love. This is the one that I always feel like I have a personal investment in to see how high it ranked. And it's the only movie that that's the case for for me, just because I feel like, uh, Peter, you're almost just alluding to this right now. Like, if you were to put a 
a capsule of like our planet's about to blow up and you want future generations of uh, humans that have migrated away from this earth or alien species that will discover the remains of our civilization. Like this is the movie I would want to show them. So by that metric, it was like I think the best representation of um, human beings and our culture and the best parts of all of those things while still – acknowledging the the duality and the fact that like life isn't clean you don't get to live out all your dreams and you know sometimes the best case scenario for that is to end up on a bridge and realize that you actually have achieved a new dream that you weren't watching for like it it doesn't shy away from darkness it doesn't shy away from any of the other stuff that makes us human but at the end of the day it does leave you with a feeling of wanting to be a better person. And there's not that many movies that do that. Like, how I don't know how you can watch It's a Wonderful Life. And on some level, sometimes it's depressing because you're looking at George Bailey and everything and you go, oh, my gosh, I am not there. But there is a part of you that, like, makes you go, yeah, you should do good things even if it doesn't benefit you. And you should be looking for the things in your life that do make you – that that are fulfilling to you and maybe you aren't looking at all those things like there's not that many movies that truly make people want to be a better person but that was one thing that roger ebert always talked about too that like the best types of movies are empathy machines that make you walk away and go i am going to put good out in the world and this is the movie version of of that so you know we definitely could talk about this movie um for hours and hours but uh, this this really is just one of the best movies of all time. One of my favorite movies. It's and one of the movies I'm most excited to to show my kids when they're a little older someday. Casey, yeah, yeah. Final Casey, thoughts. What uh, do you have any final thoughts on this? From the surface level, there are so many aspects of this movie that you would think would add up to not appealing to someone like me. I mean, my favorite movies are. The more fucked up shit, the better, basically, and <laughs> the more messed up in the head, the better. Um, and then, you, so and then you, FYI, and then you, not not to interrupt, but you and Peter should become best friends <laughs> after this. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, and then you open up with this movie with people praying and stars talking uh, that are God and an angel, and you're just it. It's like. I am by no means a religious man, so that that should cross me off from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, and yet, yeah, and yet, this movie just works on so many different levels. And despite our obvious liberal bias coming to this movie, like I'm sure there, I think this is a movie that appeals to everybody for yeah. many different reasons because there are so many layers and because there are so many great things about it and great ways that you can look at it because this movie changes for me as I age. And I think we've talked about this is that, you know, we got, there's a reason we were able to see it very young and still like it now. And then we are all, we all watched it this week and took away things that we never would have seen and never would, that didn't, wouldn't have meant anything to us 10, 20 years ago. And I think yeah. the best movies do that. They change over time. The, the ones I continue to go back to every year, the ones that I was obsessed with, you know, in college, I watched them 10 years later and like, I can still be obsessed with them, but it's going to be for a different reason because the world 
changes and you change and the movie changes too and i just love how it makes me feel and like you said want to be a better person and yet feel awful about myself at the same (laughs) time and so that and now i bring it back around to the fact that it just really fucks me up yeah in so many different ways and uh in that sense it totally makes sense to pair right along with something like a clockwork orange and on my top favorite movies list so I love these characters. I love the movie and I've very much enjoyed talking about it. So those are my final thoughts. Yeah, this was great. I'm so glad that you, you joined us for this. Um, I know when I sent the list, it was a pretty quick response to, to wanting <laughs> to do It's a Wonderful Life. And I, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised because I would have had some things to say about Home Alone too, but, um, yeah. <laughs> well, we only did Home Alone one. Uh, that's a joke only for Peter and me based on one very specific episode of this podcast. Uh, I'm sorry to everyone that just heard that. Uh, but, uh, I get it. Like, there was a, there was a joke before I met you, Casey, at work that, like, um, that I reminded, uh, Brittany, who we work with, or who I work with, who, who you live with, um, how much I remind that you, that we were kind of the same person in a lot of respects. So, I, if I had got the list uh, from someone, I would have picked It's a Wonderful Life as well. And I'm so glad that you felt the same way. And I'm so glad that you were able to join us to talk about it. Um, I hope you come back on again at some point. Uh, yeah. So what uh, what do you have to promote? Uh, promotion. Um, well, hopefully if I come back, I'll have more to promote. But uh, my brothers and I do this weird thing every year. Um, we have a blog. It's called the Giltner Brothers blog, which uh, I suppose you'll have to – write down yeah we'll put a link in the show notes absolutely um and we (laughs) make a list every year of the things that didn't suck um and our list is coming out in a week or two so well perfect it'll probably be out by so this yeah this episode comes out the third week in december so otherwise find me on social media at cj at cj giltner on twitter i don't have any followers so i probably won't tweet thank you (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Peter. We have one more episode this year, uh, and it's changed. And also, I'm going to vamp for a second because I am doing recording this from my daughter's playroom, and I've bumped a toy that is now singing a dumb song at me. Um, I don't want to show up on mic. So, okay, it stopped. Peter, we only have one more episode, and it's – fuck, it went off again. All right, it's done. I can't hear it. Peter, we have one more episode, and it changed a little bit uh, because we were going to do Christmas TV specials for our Christmas episode, uh, and then we we wanted to talk about How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and then there was nothing else that we really wanted to talk about. Uh, I do like uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and uh, Peanuts Christmas Special and some of those TV specials, but there wasn't like anything that we really felt that we were could sink our teeth into to to talk about uh, in the way like we did our anthology movie. So we scrapped that idea last minute. We talked about doing Muppet Christmas Carol because that is the big omission of favorite Christmas movies from this month. But we have an idea for next year for kind of a Muppet month and we wanted to save it for that. So Peter, <laughs> much too – we did announce this on our Facebook page and I think people thought that this was like – a joke for us or something that we were going to have to suffer through. Little do they know uh, we love two thirds of them. Peter, what are we going to talk about instead for a Christmas episode? We're going to be talking about America's favorite comic, Tim Allen. (laughs) He made a little trilogy, uh, maybe more beloved 
than the Star Wars trilogy. Oh my god. Called the Santa Claus <laughs> trilogy. And guess what? Uh it's uh it's gonna be an interesting journey. We're gonna um, do the Santa Claus. We're this gonna, is gonna do be the, the second Santa year Claus. I've watched too. all three of them. <laughs> um, and this time I'll actually take notes. Yeah, I've never seen the third one all the way through. Uh, I do really like the first two. I-, I watched them last year. I tried to watch Santa Claus Three: The Escape Clause, uh, and it is not good. So I don't know if we should start with that one so that we talk about movies we like for the rest of it. Um, <laughs> do we want to end the movie the month on a bad note? Who's to end say? the year? Yeah. Um, so I don't know, but we, yeah, we're going to do all three the the Santa Claus movies. The not- Santa Claus with an E at the end. Not the Dudley Moore Santa Claus the movie, but the Santa Claus movie. <laughs> of the weenie whistle. Yes. Uh, I'll just try and hold one as a weenie whistle. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, have a Merry Christmas. I don't know, listeners. Yeah. Uh, sure. So this will be the last Hanukkah. episode they get before Christmas, right? <clears throat> uh, I think. We'll no. edit this out if that's wrong. Uh, I think that yeah, is I, wrong. I, I, I think I, it is wrong. On a I final think- note, uh, especially as this movie is so uh, laden with with references to suicide and self harm and stuff, and and the the darkness that can come with the pressures of the holidays, um, I want to say what I said last Christmas, and that's that this can be a very trying time for people. It's gonna be a very hard time. It can be a very lonely time. And uh, yeah, if there's anyone in your life you know that could use a little reach out, or someone you might suspect could use a little bit of help. Um, reach out, say hello, give them a pat on the back, make sure that they know that you're there for them. Here's I think that's a great one. message. I will say, uh, Peter, it makes it very difficult to put a song at the end of that, uh, to wrap this up. Um, I think, but great message, whatever you hear next is going to be super awkward in relation to that message. Um, and that's representing the duality of life. Uh, if you want, we can talk about eating pussy like on Blood Diner. Yeah, that's going to be like a month old, but it's still very funny to us. I listened to it three times. <laughs> um, I think it's the hardest we've ever laughed at an episode. Uh, it's going to make no sense to Casey. We'll explain it later, yeah. or we won't. Who knows? Yeah, Merry Christmas to, to everyone, but DJ Khaled, who does not eat pussy. You guys really, not you guys really covered a lot here at the end, so <laughs> very right. impressed. Uh, and here's some more about economics. Good night. Good night.
folks. Thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch. Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.